The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. It's time to open the scriptures together, so let me invite you to open up God's Word to Ephesians chapter 2. You can find that in the New Testament of a Bible in the Purack. It's on page 976, or whatever Bible that you might have. In the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and I'll just say a, a few words by way of uh, introduction to this as we continue through our series in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, as we have been spending time in the Apostles' Creed, we've been looking at various scriptures as we walk through each article to get to the heart of what it is that we believe as a Christian church. When the Christian church confesses the Apostles' Creed, which is what we've already done this morning, we are confessing what we believe to be the summary of apostolic teaching that comes from the Bible. So that, that means that the Apostles' Creed summarizes the teachings of the Bible. And the Apostles' Creed represents the fundamental unity of the Christian church across all sorts of denominational lines. And the Apostles' Creed represents the truth that we believe together, even though there are various differences among the Christian churches in various denominations, right? Presbyterian and Baptist and Anglican and Pentecostal and Methodist and Lutheran and on and on and Mennonite, etc. But the creed doesn't deal with the stuff that divides us. It doesn't deal with the differences that we have that distinguish us in different traditions and denominations and expressions of the Christian church. The Apostles' Creed summarizes what unites us together as the true church of Jesus Christ, the true Christian church. And that is what we're thinking about this morning when we come to the line in the creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We're thinking about the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what that line is all about. Now, still just by way of introduction, it is amazing to me, fascinating, that the statement in the creed that is supposed to be speaking about unity is the thing in the creed that everybody gets all upset about creating disunity. So what you will find sometimes, especially in Protestant traditions, is a edited version of the Apostles' Creed where instead of saying Holy Catholic Church, they will put an asterisk next to the word Catholic with a footnote and explain what it means, or they will go so far as to give a redacted version of the creed and say the Holy Christian Church, because they think that the Apostles' Creed means the Catholic Church as in the Roman Catholic Church, but that is not what the Apostles' Creed means. The Apostles' Creed is not referencing the Catholic Church with regard to the Roman Catholic Church. It is referring to the Catholic Church as an adjective, namely the Catholicity of the Church, the unity of the Church, the true unified professing faith of the true Church, regardless of its divisions and differences, we are united together in our Catholicity. The word means unity. It's talking about the worldwide fellowship of believers with their children who believe in Jesus Christ, who submit to His Lordship, and gather together for worship. So, when we say Catholic Church, we don't mean a Roman tradition. We mean a spiritual unified church of Jesus Christ. So don't be ashamed to say Catholic Church because that's what it means. Catholic Church, the unified church of Jesus Christ. So as we uh, take that into mind, 
and we look to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to consider what the Apostle Paul has to say about that unified body of the church and its character and its marks. So uh, let's prepare to look at God's word by asking God's blessing upon the scriptures. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we bow now to say that you are our God and we are your people and we receive your word as the authoritative rule of life and practice for us as Christians. And so now, Lord, as you gave your Holy Spirit to inspire the scriptures, we pray that that same spirit that dwells within us might illuminate our minds to apply the scriptures to us and would gather your church and sanctify your church and each of its members that we might more faithfully live the profession that Jesus is Lord. So, Father, bless now the reading and hearing and proclamation of your word we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now hear the word of God from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, under the heading 1 in Christ at verse 11 through verse 22. This is the word of God. Remember, therefore, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Let's keep our Bible open there as we consider this holy Catholic church that we have been gathered into. Uh, Matthew Henry, who's a Puritan commentator on the Scriptures, he says this, When we take God to be our God... We take God's people to be our people. To have God as your God is to have God's people as your people. Or Augustine, several generations earlier, said it this way, you cannot have God as your father if you do not take the church as your mother. You cannot have God as your father if you cannot take the church as your mother. Both of those sentiments are true and reflect the teachings of the Bible and reflect the sentiments of what the Apostles' Creed is summarizing in the Declaration, One Holy Catholic Church. Do you love 
the people of God. Do you know the gathering of the people of God? Do you understand what the gathering of the people of God is for? The church of Jesus Christ is God's way of advancing the kingdom of Jesus in the world today. The church is God's plan. The church is God's instrument to accomplish the spreading of the kingdom of God. And as individual people profess faith in Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of their sins, they are necessarily gathered together with other people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of their sins. We said it uh, in Sunday school in greater detail, but we'll just make passing mention of it here, that you and I living in the Western world and as modern people struggle because we think of ourselves primarily as individuals rather than thinking of ourselves as a part of the corporate entity of the people of God. We, we are far too used to speaking of ourselves as I, me and my rather than we and our so what is the church and what does it mean to profess faith in the holy catholic church what does it mean that the church is catholic well what paul is doing here in the book of ephesians and one of the difficult things about these topical sermon series as we move through something and go to these various scriptures is that we oftentimes jump into a book in, you know in the middle of the context but what Paul is doing is he's writing to the Ephesian Christians and he is specifically addressing the fact that oftentimes the church experiences fractures of disunity based on our previous identities and things that mark us out as distinct from each other. And the church struggles to maintain its unity because we allow our diversity to divide us rather than to unite us in common faith in Jesus. And the church in Ephesus was experiencing that, as many New Testament churches were. And the primary thing that threatened to divide the New Testament church was the fact that the church was made up of diverse ethnic identities, but namely a Jewish identity continuing on from Israel in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and the Gentile people in the Greek world, or the non-Jewish people. You had Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, and in the New Testament, both of these people have to find a way to live together, even though they've spent their entire lives being told that you don't belong together, that you're different from each other, and your differences must necessarily divide you. But in the church of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile exist together by faith in the same Messiah, but they oftentimes struggle to find their way through what that looks like in everyday life, and that was true in Ephesus. So Paul is here writing specifically in chapter 2 to talk about the fact that the church is God's plan of unity to receive the grace of faith of salvation through Jesus Christ and then be gathered together. He writes to Ephesus, this church, including Gentile and Jewish members, to say that you Gentile members are not second-class citizens in this church. And you Jewish members are not better than your Gentile counterparts. You are one in Christ. Notice the different ways that he says this as uh, we read through this section together. But I'll just highlight a, a few things here. Specifically in verse uh, 11. As he writes to the Gentiles, he says, you're not second-class citizens. He says, you used to think of yourself as this way. 
verse 11, he speaks about the fact that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were what was called the uncircumcision. You were impure. You were not Jewish. At one time, you thought of yourself this way. Also in verse 12, notice how he uses the past tense. He says, remember that you were at that time, meaning in the past, you were what? Separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenant. No hope without God. Paul says to you Gentiles who were outside the scope of the old covenant, there was a time when you thought of yourselves as outside the family of God, outside the hope of salvation, outside of the covenant, but it's all past tense because when Christ has come, he has come to unite Jew and Gentile together into one people. So Paul speaks of that as the past tense reality because these two groups, Jew and Gentile, who were once in opposition, who were once hopelessly and helplessly divided, have now been made into one family, one body, one household. Look how he says it in verse 13. He says, but now, not like it was then, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Saying, you Gentiles, who were once outside the scope, are now included. Because you have come to faith in Jesus, and by his blood, you have been forgiven of your sins and been made alive by the Spirit. You Gentile Christians are a part of the people of God. You are a part of the body. In verse 13, he says, or sorry, verse 19, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are, in verse 19, fellow citizens. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So, this is going both directions here. The Jews should now look to the Gentiles, not as second-class citizens and outside the scope of the family, but members of the house. Fellow heirs with Christ, fellow redeemed, forgiven by the same Messiah, the Gentiles are not second-class citizens. They are equal citizens of the household of faith. But it also goes the other directions, too, because the Jew receives the Gentile no longer as impure, but the Gentile should also receive the Jew, again, to use the language of verse 19, as a fellow citizen. So the language of household is a special reference to the way the Jew thinks about themselves. But the language of citizen is a special reference to how the Gentile thinks of themselves as a Roman citizen proud of their citizenship. A Roman citizen would be proud and boastful of their earthly citizenship as a member of the politic of Rome in a various place. But Paul uses both terms to say that the household is now one in Christ. Gentiles are included in the house. And the true citizenship is not your Roman ethnic identity, the fact that you're proud of the fact that you're a Roman citizen living in Ephesus. The true citizenship is in the citizenship of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the Jews are citizens too. So Jews, you can't exclude the Gentiles thinking that they're outside the house, they're in the house. Gentiles, you can't exclude the Jews thinking they're not true citizens, they're true citizens with you. See how Paul uses this unified language, no longer aliens, fellow citizensry, in one household. Paul is saying 
that the church of Jesus Christ has this unified corporate dimension where God's plan of salvation is inescapable to bring together individuals to unite them into a whole so that as individuals receive Jesus by faith, that individual is folded into a household, brought into a spiritual citizenship, brought together with one another to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ that includes both Jew and Gentile. And it is the glory of God in the world that the church displays that these people who otherwise would have no dealings with each other are now united in faith and in love and in service to serve and witness and build each other up in this kingdom of Christ by faith. The church. Now, there are all sorts of things that we should say about that by way of implication and application. I mean, we could go on and on and on about this, but let's, let's just draw a couple principles from this with regards to a, a healthy view of the church. Because Paul says, this is what the church is. This is what the church is. So what are some things that we can draw from this uh, as a healthy view? The, the way the Bible presents the church is a correction to and even a contradiction of the way in which we think of ourselves as radical individuals. It contradicts and confronts our radical individualism that is so used to thinking about ourselves in terms of an I and a me and a my because the pronouns associated with the church are plural pronouns. They are we's and us and ours. For those who are so used to thinking about the church as a place that I go to, the New Testament says, no, no, no. The church is a place where we gather. Because the church is not, first of all, the building. It is the people. The corporate people. The we. The church is the people. The dangers of an individualistic mentality when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ is that individual mentalities fuel what we call consumeristic opinions of the church. Namely, that the church exists for me. And the church exists to serve me and meet my needs. Individualistic opinions of the church says, I am a consumer here, and I take only. A church that exists only to meet my needs is a church that you will attend only insofar as it satisfies you and meet your needs. If the church is all about you, if the church is only viewed by you as a, a thing for which you are a consumer, let it be said, the New Testament would say you have an unhealthy and immature understanding of the church. In fact, there are lots of studies on this in the modern age. This is not a new thing, by the way, but there are lots of studies about this, especially related to the decreasing realities of church attendance you know, in the modern world. Fascinatingly, where oftentimes people assume that church attendance is going down because there are less percentage of professing Christians in the world, it's actually the case, not that there are less Christians in the world, but that the Christians who are in the world go to church less. Which then starts to ask other questions. What is happening is that 
people who attend church are attending church less frequently where studies produce the fact that somebody could be a regular church attender but only be in church half of the Sundays in a year and be considered regular. That means at any given time, half the congregation is missing. Instead, the New Testament presents a view of the church as a corporate reality, a we mentality, a place not that I go to consume and receive, but rather a place where I go to be with the people of God and serve and meet other people's needs and give of myself and lay down my preferences for the good of the body of Christ. This is the way the New Testament paints the picture of the church. Not a place where I go to have my needs met, but where I go to meet other people's needs. And insofar as I do have legitimate needs, there are people who are there to love me and serve me and meet my needs. But I don't go just to take. I go to give and I go to serve and I go to be a part of this. This is the view of the church as a covenant community where we affirm in our services that we are the people of God. Together, having received the grace of Christ, we are enfolded into this spiritual community of those who have received grace and want to show grace to others. It is the idea of the spiritual union of the people of God that when you, by faith in Jesus, are united to Christ, you are united to everybody else who's united to Christ as well. And people become your neighbors and your family who you otherwise wouldn't consider your neighbors or your family because you are one in Christ as members of the same body. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle John would say, you can't say you truly love God if you hate your brothers. That is to say, you can't say you have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus if you despise the church. You can't hate the family of God and profess true faith in Christ. We love God and we love His people. We love His people because they're God's people. And because they're God's people, they're our people. And we usually say it this way. Isn't it wonderful to belong to a church family? That's what we mean, right? We mean all those intangible ways in which we love and serve one another and show up for each other's needs and provide and care in ways that we know about and in ways that are oftentimes unspoken or don't receive praise or recognition. I mean, can you, can you think for a moment of a way in which the church has been there for you to love you and care for you and your family? That's what we're talking about when we talk about the church in this way. And when we speak of the church, a healthy view of the church in this unified body, what we mean is we are talking about this sense of to use the Apostles' Creed term, the Catholicity of that church, the unity of that church, the common faith of that church. God calls all His people to love and care for all His people. The Christian who understands the understanding of the church here in the New Testament and as articulated in the Apostles' Creed as a Catholic faith understands that the Christian church is bigger than the scope of this particular building. Bigger than the scope of our brand of Protestantism. Bigger than the scope of Protestantism in general. That the Christian church is a unified spiritual reality that transcends earthly barriers to create a unified body of Christ. Have you ever met somebody who you, you had no relationship with otherwise? Maybe 
through work or through travel or whatever, and you find out that, that they're a professing Christian. And suddenly you realize that you have wonderful things in common with this person. And you're able to have joyful conversations about faith and about the church and about Christ and what a wonderful thing it is. You didn't know that person from Adam five minutes ago, but all of a sudden you realize that I have a bond with this person, that I would go so far as to say I have a love for this person. They were a stranger to me, but they are joined together with me in common faith, and therefore I have love for them as my brother or my sister in Christ. That's what this term means, the Catholicity of the church. It speaks of the unity and the transcendence of the church beyond earthly denominational and building and the things that we put on signs outside of churches to describe the unity of the body. Now here's what Jesus has to say about that. Jesus says in John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you. Right? He's going to tell him, look, here's what you really need to do. Here's what's really important. And he says this. Love each other. Love each other as I have loved you. Even as I have loved you, you should love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for each other. Now, in John 13... It's just prior to him going to uh, the cross. It's a, uh, ahead of the upper room discourse. And Jesus has all sorts of things on his mind. But the thing that he wants to say to his disciples, most especially after three years of public ministry and three years of private ministry, he says, look, guys, here's what's really important that you need to know. You ready? This is deep. Love each other. Just love each other. And that's an astonishing thing, actually, because even that group of disciples was an incredibly disparate and diversified group of people. You had in that group of disciples a guy named Simon the Zealot, who was essentially a Jewish nationalist who saw his duty as a Jew to overthrow the politics of the Roman Empire, and a guy named Matthew who was employed by that empire. So you had a nationalist who wanted to throw the empire of a guy who worked for that empire in the same group, right? This is the equivalent of uh, an Israeli and a Palestinian sitting in the same room together and saying, get along. And Jesus says to them, love each other. Love each other, right? So we think that in our day, that our various divisions of political disposition and social opinions and all these various things that divide us, Jesus is saying, no, that's not what's most important about you. Who you are, where you come from, what your background is, your opinion on this or that, that's not what's most important about you. What's most important is that you manifest love for Christ by loving those who love Christ. Jesus says this in the context oftentimes of the disciples arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus says to them, brothers, love one another. Now, the reason why we should highlight that, the reason why Jesus highlights it, and the reason why I think it's good to say now is because actually most of you know, pastoral care and ministry and learning to get along in the church together is just an application of this command, right? Love each other. Get on with each other. Forgive each other. Bear with each other. Be patient with each other. 
purposely overlook the faults of each other. Love each other, Jesus says. That's different in times when we gather together and we come from different backgrounds, perhaps different social you know, connections or understandings, different occupations. Sometimes we're competitors in business and sometimes we're competitors in the marketplace and sometimes we might be divided by all manner of things according to the world. But Jesus says what's most important about us is our unity through which we love each other for as much as the world might seek to divide us, we are united in the church. And Jesus says, this is the way the world will know that you are my disciples. Because you don't bicker in hostility the way everybody else does. And aren't you sick of it? Good grief. Good grief, right? How should the church be distinguished in the midst of a world that is filled with such hostility and division and disunity? It says that what is most important about us isn't our opinion on this, 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 and that. Legitimate as those things may be, I'm not denying that. But what's most important is the gospel and faith in that Christ. So friends, if this is the spirit that you embody, then you embody what the Apostles' Creed is saying as Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, that the church is holy and Catholic and united together in one household, no longer strangers, but a part of one family. So you should ask the question, how does my view of the church reflect my understanding of the gospel. Because if I have a view of the church that is fundamentally consumeristic and individualistic and based on meeting my needs, then I probably view Jesus that way too. Where I want a Savior who's going to give me what I need, but I don't want a Savior who's going to call me to go places or do things or to obey Him in ways that don't make me comfortable or that I'm not immediately okay with. But a view of the church in a healthy way that says I'm a part of the body of Christ, bought by the blood of Christ and forgiven of my sins and enfolded into a spiritual community of a we and an us, that is a healthy view of the church. I'll close by just saying this. Yes, we were at Presbytery this past weekend, and uh, the interesting thing about when you get together a bunch of pastors in one place is, is, you know, they all talk about their churches. And actually, one of the discouraging things for me is how often I hear, I hear pastors complain about their churches and complain about their people and the bickering and the disunity. And you can imagine that over the last year and a half, there were plenty of opportunities to present disunity. And some of our churches in the EPC went through real strife. And uh, I, I want to tell you, as an individual and as your pastor, what a joy it is for me to speak about you. What a joy it is for me to be your pastor and to say, we might have some divided opinions on some things in Edgington, but they don't get in the way of the most important thing, which is Christ and the gospel. They don't get in the way. And I want to tell you what a joy it is to be a pastor of a people that have that conviction. And by God's grace, I hope we will continue in that way as we each individually as Christians see ourselves primarily as the body of Christ, one holy Catholic church unified in common faith. Nowhere is that more evident than at the table. So let's prepare our hearts for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the mercy that You have shown us by sending Your Son into the world receiving Him back into heaven and sending Your Holy Spirit that You have gathered a church together. We thank You for our church here in Edgington. 
But Father, how mindful we are that we are not the only expression of the church. So we thank you for that invisible church that has gathered from every age and every place throughout all time. We thank you, Lord, that through faith in Christ we are a part of that body and pray that by our visible expression we might be a faithful body proclaiming Christ, faithfully following Him and growing in Him. Lord, bless us, we ask now, as we seek to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.